Hello. We are so glad that you could join us today. Our prayer is that as you listen to the word, you would take this time to draw nearer to God as an individual and as a family. God loves you so, so much. And his desire is for you to get closer to him in this season through worship, through dwelling in his word and prayer. Well, good morning. I want to thank you for uh, tuning in this morning. And uh, I believe that uh, this message that I'm about to share with you will uh, prick your heart. I mean, uh, this morning I've titled this, entitled this message, The Importance of Intentional Discipleship. Now, to be honest with you, I've kind of wrestled with that title because uh, the whole idea behind discipleship is not much of a topic these days in the church. And to bring this to bear uh, is a challenge. It's a challenge to yours and my hearts. We, we live in a society where we're called postmodern. And uh, what that simply means is this, that there was a time that we were a Christian society, and what we actually believed was that there were absolutes that God was in control, God could make a demand on our lives, and that we would obey Him, that we would follow Him, and to the best of our ability, we were living in the Christian principles and, and, and values, and society was built around those values. Then we slipped into what was called the post-Christian era, and the post-Christian era was simply an era where we began to interpret the Scriptures for ourselves. In other words, we no longer believed that the Bible meant what it said and said what it meant. In theory, we did. But in reality, we redefined the scriptures to suit ourselves. And we kind of made excuses for the fact that, well, I don't think anybody could really do what the Bible says. Uh, and so we began to interpret through our circumstances, our situations, our uh, lives, the scriptures to suit us. Unfortunately, we've gone even further away from the truth these days to where hardly anyone believes the Bible is the Word of God to where today we believe that we have the right to interpret our lives the way we want to interpret it. We can interpret everything through the filter of what I believe. So you get conversations like this that happen often between uh, family members. One member of the family will say something like, well, you know, uh, that's how you believe it, but that's not how I believe it. Or, you know, people will say, well, that's your God, or that's your Jesus, but the, the Jesus I believe in is the way I interpret it. And so in our society today, because of the glut of information, the glut of, of uh, uh, opinions, everybody's pretty much turned to their own way. So this morning, I wanted to initiate a study to help you and I, as members of the church, to take a hard look at ourselves and to ask what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been wrestling with a few of the ideas that I'm going to be tackling this morning for a few weeks now. My role as your pastor and considering what Jesus commanded in the Great Commission has compelled me to investigate my own heart and to look at the cost or the price of what it means to be a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back during the war, World War II, 
there was a man, his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, <clears throat> he was a famous anti-Nazi German pastor and theologian. And he was known for his opposition to what was happening in Germany and in the German concentration camps in particular. He authored a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he wrote many things, but one of the things that he said was, cheap grace is the grace that we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You know, now that's language that we probably don't speak in the 21st century. The, he bids me come and die. But if you really listen to what Bonhoeffer is saying, he is talking about the price that we must pay to be a disciple of Jesus. And it's nothing short of our own death, our own dying to self. When, God, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And you have to understand, this guy Bonhoeffer, Dietrich, was imprisoned in the Buchenwald concentration camp in Weimar, Germany. And he was eventually executed in 1945, just towards the end of the war, for being, and he was being accused of being part of a conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. This is uh, a man who lived out his resistance against evil, his proclamation of the gospel. He was a very, very strong proponent of preaching Christ and him crucified. The Webster's Dictionary defines a disciple as one who receives instruction from another, or a learner or a follower who has learned to believe the truth or doctrine of his teacher. Uh, it's an adherent to doctrine. Uh, it's a disciple. A, 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 a disciple is a, uh, is a disciple of our Savior. It also means to teach and to train. So uh, with that in mind, with that definition in mind, uh, I'd like to also kind of, uh, for the sake of this teaching, add another kind of definition. A disciple is someone who wholeheartedly follows Jesus and intentionally helps him to also, to help others also follow him. So when we think about being a disciple, it's about our own discipline in following Christ. It's about being a follower. It's about being an adherent. It's about doing what our Savior says. And then intentionally helping others to also follow him. Now, as I address this whole issue or this whole idea of discipleship, I, I wanted to direct our attention to something that I kind of mentioned last week, in last week's message. You see, Jesus has come to save us from this world, from, actually from the darkness of this world. And uh, he wants to save us so that we can enter into a relationship with him and with others in the kingdom of light or the kingdom of his dear son. And, and, and so this is what it means for 
you and I to be one of his disciples. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Last week I described the world as being in darkness. Uh, I also described the conditions that we as believers are living in. I, uh, and I want to reiterate that picture again this morning. Because the Bible really makes some strong declarations about how what the world and the world system looks like. It says in 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. John three nineteen says, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John goes on to say this in John 8 and verse 12. He says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John again says in John 12 verse 46, he says, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believes on me should not abide in darkness. And of course, the Apostle Paul, he probably gave the most definitive statement about our lives in terms of the spiritual warfare we face. In Ephesians 6 and verse 12, he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The Bible clearly declares that the whole world lies in darkness. That's a terrible thought. And many people don't want to believe that. In fact, you know, when I grew up as a kid, uh, I believed that if you left a man to himself, he would be, he'd do right. He'd do the right thing. If somebody had the choice between doing bad and doing good, they would always choose good. I have been sorely, sorely disappointed in mankind. Uh, if you leave people to themselves, they will, do, they will not do right. Uh, left to ourselves, we will do evil. We will be a part of a dark world, and we will do evil. A politician left to himself will not do right. He'll, unless he has the Holy Spirit, unless he has made a choice to be a disciple, to have light, he will not do what's right. He will always do what is darkness. This world is full of darkness. The whole world lies in darkness. And in this world of darkness, the challenge for you and I is for us to live not according to the ways of this world, but by the truth of God's Word. You see, I think that the end times is going to require something of you and I as believers. And I think it's going to mean that we're going to have to be very intentional in our love for each other, and in the choices that we make. And you see, our choices are going to determine whether we're going to walk in the light and they're going to determine the degree to which we will be a disciple of Jesus the Christ. So today, with that kind of a preamble, I'd like to have you open your Bibles with me to the book of Luke. And we're going to look at what Jesus actually says about being a disciple. In Luke chapter 14, the 25th through the 27th verse, Listen to what Jesus says. He says, Now the crowds accompanied him, 
And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. <laughs> Boy, this passage is as pointed as it is powerful. It is both stunning and shocking. These words spoken by Jesus are difficult. They're demanding. These words are abrupt. They're offensive. Unfortunately, these, these words are flying in the face of much of modern-day Christianity. Uh, this whole narrative runs counter to the current trends in much of the church worldwide. In fact, you may even be finding yourself pushing back at this verse right now. Uh, I, when I read it, and I sometimes have a tendency to want to skip over certain things because it's painful to me. But when I read this, it made me feel very, very uncomfortable. So today, as we look at this passage of Scripture, as we look at what Jesus said, I want all of us, I want you and I, to resist the urge to dilute these commands and these demands of Jesus. Instead, let's allow the full force of them to, if we can, to jar us out of complacency and comfortable Christianity. I think it's time for the church to understand that our purpose as the church is not to administer therapy to the flock. It's more important that we press hard into the theology that Jesus taught the church and help people come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, before I delve into the depths of this study and give you, I have four points today, but before I do that, I have two observations that I'd like to uh, kind of frame this text in. First, I want you to consider the context of the passage. You know, if you read right before Jesus confronting the disciples inside of this multitude, uh, he comes right after the parable where Jesus is just finishing telling about the importance of inviting people to his banquet. So the context of this is the urgent evangelistic demand of the Christ, of the Master saying, I have created a banquet, I have a place for people to come, and people are rejecting him. So it's right on the heels of this. He's just given this parable, and he's given it to the multitudes that he turns, and he looks at his disciples, and he asks those questions. You know, if we listen to what is said here in the book of Luke, the 14th chapter, he says, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel the people to come in that my house might be filled. The second thing I'd like you to look at as I frame this is that this is a demanding discipleship passage. Jesus is laying down conditions to those who are considering following him. At the end of verse 26 and again at the end of verse 27, we read, he cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my, my, my disciple. If you go a little bit further to verse 33, Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, as I said earlier, a disciple is a learner, a follower. And uh, the term has been described to, has been used to describe someone who was totally committed to a cause uh, or, or, or totally committed to a person. 
it kind of also has the connotation or the idea that uh, you learn to be committed, you learn to be part of that cause through practice or through experience. Uh, you know, I, I remember in the early years of Zimbabwe when uh, almost every high school graduate would take a gap year or sometimes two years and they would be sent by their parents to learn a trade. Uh, sometimes it would even take up to three or four years for them to learn this trade, but usually it was about a, a one or two year gap year to learn a trade. And there was a whole program that had been set up in the country to assure that there were artisanal skills that could be relied upon to keep the nation running. Now, what transpired was that every person had a skill that they could fall back on if they needed to, and everybody could work with their own hands. They had an ability to do something with their own hands. Uh, this, this is a perfect picture, in my mind, of what it means to be a disciple. Uh, only this was in the marketplace. This was, this was something that we did to keep commerce alive and to keep uh, you know, some of these skills like fitter and turner and, and uh, electrician and engineers, uh, engineering alive. And uh, I think that when we think of being a disciple in the kingdom of God, we must understand it's one who emulates or who is taught or trained by their teacher. And of course, Jesus wants to be our teacher through his Holy Spirit. I think Jesus said it another way. In, in, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, he says, a, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. See, one of the fundamental principles of Christianity is that Jesus is more interested in having committed followers than he is drawing a huge crowd. You know, a, a lot of times I think we have crowds of what I would say are unreliable fans. Uh, they, 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 uh, they're along for the ride. As long as things are going good, they're, they're what I call fair-weather Christians. You know, hey, yeah, this is great. But Jesus is not so interested in those who go along with the, to get along. He's more interested in those who have committed themselves to something. And throughout the scriptures, Jesus is always emphasizing quality over quantity. So, in this passage of Scripture, we can see that although Jesus understands that the family is foundational, following Christ must come first. This morning, I want to look at this passage of Scripture, and I want to dissect four discipleship demands. Four demands that you and I must meet if we're going to be intentional disciples. Number one, Jesus makes a distinction and moves from the crowd to the committed core. Now, you know, Jesus was uh, famous for drawing large crowds, multitudes. Luke 14, 25, this is what it said. It says, now great crowds accompanied him. And then it says an interesting thing, and he turned and said to them. Jesus had this great crowd, but he turned and he looked right at his disciples. Jesus, if you study his life and ministry, was really never interested in being popular. He was interested in doing his father's will. He was interested in raising up disciples. Uh, another picture of how these crowds would gather is Luke 12 and verse 1. It says, In the meantime, there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch they trampled upon one another. My, my, my wife loves that passage of scripture. Uh, 
you know, so many people that they're stepping on each other, or trampling each other. What, what, what a vivid picture, how big these crowds got, that they're actually, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a huge crowd where they start pushing from the back. They're pushing you up against the stage or they're, or, or, or they're just pushing through a gate. It, it can be very, almost terrifying. And here, Jesus says they're trampling one another. Or the Bible says they're trampling one another. The crowds were so big. I think Jesus understood something. He understood that many in the crowd were following him for selfish or for superficial reasons. Some just came for the food or for the excitement or for the miracles or just because there was a big crowd. I mean, uh, if you read through the scriptures, you see that uh, most of those people uh, were not really interested in changing their lives. And amid all the fanfare, Jesus turns away from the crowd. So think about this. Here he is. He's got this multitude and he turns towards his disciples. Now, the language that describes how Jesus turned towards his disciples depicts something that was actually very dramatic. It actually means, uh, in the the Greek language, it actually means to twist forcefully with a deliberate effort. Uh, This is the same word that Jesus used to describe, or that the the, the Bible, I'm sorry, that was uh, used to describe how Jesus locked eyes with Peter after he had denied him in Luke, uh, Luke 22, verse 61. It says, and when the Lord turned and looked at Peter, I, 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 you know, that turn and look was deliberate. It was forceful. It was with purpose. Uh, well, I want you to know something. Can you imagine being Peter? You just denied the Lord for the third time. And Jesus walks through and turns and looks right at you. Eee. That's exactly what happened with these disciples. The multitudes are there. He's just preached. And all of a sudden, Jesus turns and captures their attention. What did he want to tell them? He has their attention. Here's what he wanted to tell them. He's moved from the multitudes and he's riveted his attention on his disciples. Secondly, he prioritizes faith over family. How would you respond if Jesus spun around right now, locked eyes on you, and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. When I read that, it's like, it seems a little tough, a little hard. So I want you to think about what's happening. These are words are coming from Jesus himself. These words are not just directed at the disciples in this story. They're intended for each and every one of us. If anyone comes to me, the Bible says, if anyone comes to me. See, this isn't just a call to pastors or missionaries or intercessors or some kind of spiritual leader. This is to any person who would follow him. Anyone who would be his disciple. See, I'm concerned that the direction of much of the preaching and teaching in the church around the world has shifted from providing a form of therapy, shifted to providing a form of therapy for the members of the body of Christ. We're kind of stroking each other. You know, I just want you to feel good, feel good about yourself. Uh, We kind of fall into the trap of gathering large crowds to tell them how to be just the best that they can be. 
just live the best life or be the best you can be or, you know, how you can be prosperous and be blessed. Now, those are good messages and I'm not denigrating the fact that God wants you blessed and God wants you to live a good life. And, but that is not the core of discipleship. That is not the core of what Jesus called people to be. And when we end up stroking each other and we end up just speaking these words, we, we, we miss the crux sometimes of what the gospel is really about. See, the crowds wanted what they thought Jesus would give them, not knowing that following Christ would cost them everything. Now, I want you to listen, and I want you to allow the impact of what Jesus is saying about his demands of real discipleship in this passage of Scripture. I want you to let it shock us. Let it rock us. I want you to imagine something. Imagine how offensive this statement would have been to the Jews who were listening. You understand, their culture was made around honoring parents. In fact, it was one of the highest obligations to honor your parents and, and, and to honor family. And it was a source of, what, of pride and one's greatest joy in life was their family and, and, and and, 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 and even today in the Middle East, you'll find that family is a very, very important thing. These words would have offended those in the culture. In fact, it would have offended them right to their very core. Now, it's important to know that a common Jewish view at that time was that the Messianic era would be preceded by a time of disharmony in family relationships. So in a very real sense, they're... The people of this multitude and the disciples are in this mindset, is this the Messiah? Is this the one to come? And, and, and so what Jesus is doing, he, he's, he's speaking to that, he's playing to that, and he's actually saying that he is the Messiah. And using biblical language, he is speaking into the cultural mindset of those that he's ministering to. And he's announcing that he is the Messiah. He's using direct reference to scriptures that they would have understood. Micah 7 and verse 6 is the scripture that he's actually referring to in this passage of scripture. He says, For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are they of his own household. Mm. You see, the word that Jesus uses in this passage for hate, you must hate your mother, you must hate your father. Uh, it, 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 it's not quite what you may think. In our day and age, hate is the opposite of love. It's, it's the, it's, these, are, these are polarized words. But in, 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 the, this, in this language, it means to detest or to abhor. And Jesus isn't saying that we are to act in a hateful way towards our families. No, he, he's really saying that, uh, and the Bible's very clear, that we are to you know, it gives us commands throughout the Bible. I mean, in Exodus, it says, honor your parents. Uh, again, in Ephesians, we're found to, that we're to honor our parents. It's the first promise, or the first commandment with promise. Husbands are told to love their wives, and wives are to respect their husbands, and dads are not to exasperate their children, and mothers are not to love their, mothers are told to love their husbands, and, and to love their children, and uh, grown children are to care for their parents when they're no longer able to do so. So, I mean, the Bible's full of these kind of exhortations. So, what am I saying? I said, well, I believe this. Our challenge is to understand this cultural expression without diluting the demands of discipleship. The bottom line 
is that since there will inevitably be conflict between following Christ and our family ties, we must prioritize faith over family. You see, that word hate in the Bible most often expresses a place in priority or in preference as opposed to an emotional hatred. Uh, I can love my wife or my children and not agree with them about their faith. But my priority has to be on my faith, not on my disdain for what they're doing. In Hebrew, the word hate can mean to love less. So the emphasis that Jesus is making sets his priority on love. Jesus explains it another way. In, in a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I don't believe that we can minimize the cost to our relationships with family members when we choose to faithfully follow Christ. For some of you, for some of us, our faith has already led to, maybe I'll call it family feuds. There may actually come a time when our parents don't understand our faith, or our spouse doesn't share in our spiritual priorities, or our children think that we're too fanatical. I know that when I was called to come to Africa, my mom and dad couldn't understand it. In fact, their argument was, well, there's a lot of people that aren't saved in America. Why can't you just stay here and do your ministry? And uh, <clears throat> they were hoping that I'd get over it. They were hoping that yeah, this is a phase he's going through. They were hoping that, uh, you know, uh, and then, you know, now it's been 40, 44 years. And uh, guess what? I, I, I never got over it. And it, it did cause some friction. My, some of my brothers even struggled with the fact that I left them. I forsook them. You know, I was the big brother. I was the oldest brother. and It caused pain in, in my family. But see, Jesus didn't call me to stroke my family or to love my family. He told me to follow him. You may face some of those same challenges. Look, after Peter mentioned how much the disciples, he's speaking on their behalf, had left in order to follow the Lord, Jesus responded in Mark 10, verses 29 through 30. He said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You see, we're, we're all called to love and live our lives for Christ. But he must be first. Even if our families don't follow him. And then he tells us, whatever you've lost because of Christ, you'll receive a hundred times now in this life, in this time, brothers and sisters and mothers and lands and all these things. So, where do we get all these siblings? <laughs> where do we get all these parents? Well, I want you to understand something. It's in the church. You see, our faith family is actually meant to be more substantial than our genetic bonds. 
of a physical family. These physical family relationships are, are powerful, but they're not nearly as powerful as the spiritual relationships when God knits men's hearts together. Now, it doesn't matter if you're here by yourself, uh, listening online, or uh, if you're engaging on this, uh, in, in this message by, all by yourself or, or with your family. If you're a child or a teenager, if you're single, or if you're married, if you're divorced, if you're widowed, or if you're an empty nester, you have to understand something. God understands, and he says, we are family. In fact, the Bible says this. He says he takes the solitary, and he places them in families. That family that he intended was a family of disciples, a family of people that would follow him, and he would become our father. I want to encourage you today. As a disciple, we can't defer to family before we defer to God. Third, let me pick up the third point. We must love the Lord more than we love our own lives. Hmm. Now, Jesus hits the very heart of human relationships to make sure that following him comes first. Then he brings it closer to home and challenges us to lay aside our personal ambitions, our goals, and our very lives. If anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You know, <clears throat> Levi, or as we know him today, Matthew, demonstrated this when he left his old life, when he was called by Jesus. You know, he was a tax collector, and Jesus walks by his tax station. I don't know if they'd had encounters before, but I know there came a moment in time when Jesus looked at Levi, looked at Matthew, and he called him to follow him. And the Bible says unequivocally in Luke chapter 5 and verse 20, it says, and leaving everything, he rose up and followed him. <laughs> That's a pretty, you're the tax collector. You're making a great living and you leave everything, rose up and follow him. I want you to know something. It takes courage to be a disciple and to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. A commitment to Christ is costly. You know, it wasn't long ago and I was talking to uh, a young person, young adult, about the need to be born again. And I, and I love doing this. I love talking to people. And, uh, you know, uh, I am always trying to get somebody to accept Jesus. And uh, as I was urging this young man to get saved, I have a question I ask people. Usually at some point I said, I asked him if there was something that he knew about that was holding him back. I mean, it shot out of his mouth. He says, yes, commitment. I was kind of taken aback by his honesty. And uh, I complimented him. I said, uh, I told him how important it is that he does count the cost. I said, because becoming a Christian means that you must die to yourself and you must live for the Savior for the rest of your life. And I kind of chided him. I said, don't make this decision lightly. Finally, let me give you the last point today. The fourth point is to fully surrender our lives to his rule and his authority. If we're going to be intentional disciples, we need to fully surrender to his rule, his authority, really his sovereignty. Verse 27 says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
That word bear, to bear our own cross, simply means to, to take it up and to raise it up. Unfortunately, in many ways, we have romanticized and we've commercialized the cross. We've turned it into an ornament to be put on our walls or we wear around our necks. It's a piece of jewelry. It's a, sometimes we even you know, put it up in a parking lot so that we are trying to make some kind of a statement. But the power, the implication, the whole idea around the cross is kind of lost in 21st century Christianity. It's, it's more of a symbol than it is a reality. But in the time of Christ, this was a reality. The cross was the worst form of death and punishment known to mankind. The cross was carried by condemned criminals and ended with humiliation, with an excruciating and painful execution. Everyone knew that the person who was going to the cross was basically saying goodbye to everything. And there was no turning back. See, according to our Savior, discipleship must involve death to self, death to our independence, death to our agendas and our own expectations. You know, I've been delving in the book of Revelation lately because I believe we're living in the end times. And in, in Revelation 12 and verse 11, uh, describes those who are completely committed to Christ. And it says this, it says, for they love not their lives even unto death. The question I want to ask this morning, and I want you to ask yourself, is, there's a few questions. Number one, am I, am I willing to renounce every person, every possession, and even myself in order to follow Christ? Ask yourself, what's keeping me from following fully? Is it like that young man? Is it commitment? Or is it an unholy habit? Or maybe an ungodly relationship? Is it the pleasure of sin that keeps you from committing? In the book of Revelation, the scripture declares that the church of Ephesus had, the Bible says, abandoned the love that they had at first. In Revelation 2, verse 5, Jesus challenges them. He, he says, remember therefore, therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. <sighs> this morning, I know that we live in these incredibly perilous, tough times. And I, I don't want to deny that. But the Bible says that at the end of time, the love of most would grow cold, that we would lose our love. And like that church in the book of Revelation, when they lost their love, Jesus was saying, hey, go back to where you have fallen, repent, and go do those first works again. If for some reason, <laughs> you've lost your first love, Stop for a minute. Remember. Repent. And start doing what you did before. I kind of like how one pastor summarized this passage. He said, salvation is both 
absolutely free, and yet it costs you your very life. He says you receive it freely at no expense to you, but once you receive it, you have just committed everything you are and everything you have to Jesus Christ. Look, the best gift you can give your family is to make your faith and their faith your top priority. I believe that the family is foundational, but following Christ must come first. If we're going to be intentional disciples, we must, number one, move from the crowd to the committed core. Number two, we must prioritize our faith over our family. Number three, we must love the Lord more than our own life. And finally, we must fully surrender to his rule and his authority, his supremacy. Now for those of you that are listening, the way to enter the family of faith is by receiving what Jesus has done for you on the cross. John 1, verses 12 and 13 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, the key here is not who you're related to, not what church you grew up in, not, uh, nothing. There's nothing that is as important as whether or not you have repented and received Christ. Today I'm going to ask you to determine in your heart to be a disciple, to follow him as a devoted and intentional disciple for the rest of your life. And I know you have to understand that uh, the fact is that when Christ calls you, he's commanding you to come and to die. Like Bonhoeffer said, I bid thee, come and die, come and die. And so today, this is not an easy message. But God didn't call me to preach easy messages. He called me to confront you and I, myself, with truth. I'm calling you to discipleship, to intentional discipleship. If today this message is speaking to you or convicting you, don't, don't, don't wash it away. Don't push it away. Wrestle with it. Wrestle with God. Give your life wholly to Him. He will reward you. If you need help to get through this message, if you need to respond to it, if you've never been born again, if you uh, find yourself really asking some questions, right there on the screen there's some numbers, phone numbers. Those phone numbers will connect you to a counselor, they'll connect you to a person who can get you to a pastor, to a, a personal counselor, to uh, someone who can talk to you, to a cell group where you can begin to, like the rest of us, start working through and beginning to uh, deal with these issues. So pick up your phone, call someone. Right now, if you've never received Jesus, pray this prayer with me. Say, Jesus, I realize it's gonna cost me everything to follow you. Today, I'm asking you to come into my life. First of all, forgive me of my sin. Secondly, would you be my Lord? 
my Savior. I want to be your disciple. If you prayed that prayer, again, pick up the phone. Talk to someone. Tell them, hey, I prayed that prayer. Something's happening in your life. Something's happening in our lives. Something Something is happening in our generation. We love you. We'll see you again next week. God bless you. Thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that you were blessed and that God will continue to transform your life in this season. If you have a testimony or need prayer and counseling, please send a WhatsApp or a call me to plus 263-784-303900 or plus 263-717-459999. We want to hear from you and we're here for you and are ready to listen to you, to pray for you and to celebrate with you. So thank you. We love you and stay safe.